So I, uh, I'm in a group text with uh, three other, with three youth pastors from Tulsa, and uh, we were texting this morning. Apparently, it is um, tag in your youth pastor to preach Sunday because all four of us are are up today. But it's great, man. Again, thank you for being here. It's good to see all of you. Uh, this morning, we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 24. If you want to follow along your Bible, you can, or it'll be on the screen. So chapter 23 leads, like, it kind of leaves us with what we might see as like an old school high-speed chase because it ends with King Saul and his men pursuing after David and his men. They're bearing down on them, and it almost seems like David's going to get caught. When all of a sudden Saul receives word, he receives word that the Philistines have invaded. And so Saul has to turn his attention from pursuing David and instead go and deal with this whole Philistine situation. And while David and his men get reprieved from Saul, they they know that it's not going to last. And in chapter 24, we see that Saul is right back to pursuing David again. But in chapter 24, something happens, something that neither side could have ever planned for. And this is the episode that we're going to look at today. And as we do, as we look at this story in the life of David and Saul and their men, I want us to consider what it means for us. And I want us to think about these three things. What do we value? How do we see ourselves? And who do we trust? We'll read all of chapter 24. Um, Let's turn there now. Will you follow along with me as I read? It says there, When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of Engida. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I'll give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as shall seem good to you. And David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterwards David's heart struck him, because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing that he's the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and he went on his way. And afterwards, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, my lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, man, why do you listen to the words of men who say, behold, David seeks you harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. And I said, I won't put out my hand against my Lord, for he's the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe that's in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and didn't kill you, you may know and see there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the Proverbs of the proverb of the ancients say, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? Well, after a dead dog, after a flea. 
May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. And as soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and he wept and he said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me, and that you didn't kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know you shall surely be king, and the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me therefore by the Lord that you won't cut off my offspring after me, and that you won't destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul, and Saul went home. But David and his men went up to the stronghold. Church, all of these, the words of God from the mouth of God, that he has given to us because he loves us, and these words, they are true. I want you to think about something that, that you greatly value. Like, maybe it's a picture from years ago. Um, maybe it's something that a person that you really care about gave to you, something special. Maybe it's something that reminds you of a specific day. You know, the things that we often hold value, like that hold value to us, they don't really matter much to other people. Like they're just not valuable to them. For instance, like if you go into my office at home, you'll find this really small shadow box on a shelf. And in that shadow box is stuff that used to be my grandma's. And there's two things in there in particular that are really valuable to me her watch and this picture of her and I whenever I was a real little boy. Now, these mean a great deal to me because they carry sentimental value. But to you, if you looked at them, like, that's a tiny watch that probably is worth an extremely insignificant amount of money. And that picture is just of some old lady in some funky plaid pants and a very cute but chubby little boy. And you'd be like, that's great. I guess. But in the way that that is, those things are sentimental to me, there's something sentimental to you. Like for Elliot, Elliot has a prized possession. It's this small blanket that she got the day she was born. Elliot's blanket, Beth Buchanan knows, prized possession. But if you saw it, you'd be like, this thing is worthless to me. It won't fit around my shoulders. But there's something like that for you. What is that thing? What to you has value? We place value on possessions, but not only possessions, right? We place value on relationships and all sorts of other things. And we often don't realize how much they mean to us until they're threatened or taken away. As we look at this text today, David is actually showing us something. He is showing us, hey, this is what's actually valuable. So here's the scene. We find David and his men hiding out in the back of this cave. When all of a sudden, who should walk in but King Saul? This man who has been pursuing David's life. Now in the grand scheme, what is Saul's mission? To find David and probably to murder him on the spot. But in the immediate, not the, like step back from the grand scheme, in the immediate, you know what Saul is looking for? A nice, quiet, secluded place to go potty. Like, that's what it says. Not in those exact words, but this is the idea. 
And as Saul sits down to do his business, as he sits there playing solitaire on his phone, checking the scores from last night and wondering what somebody is going to make him for dinner, he has no idea what is going on just feet away from him. Because we find David and his men watching. And not only watching, but also talking about what they should do with this unbelievable opportunity that's fallen into their lap. Look at what it says in verse 4. David's men are saying, dude, God has placed Saul at your disposal. Do what seems good to you. Translation, go kill that fool in the cave when nobody else is around. And imagine, I want you to imagine being David in this moment. Think of everything that is circling around in his mind. He's no doubt thinking like, yeah, that's Saul. That's the guy that has driven me away from my home. Caused me to live on the run. Caused me to live in the wilderness. He's the reason that I'm living in this cave. Not with my wife, but a bunch of dudes. He is the reason that I've suffered great heartache. He is the reason that I had to receive the news that this priest that gave me aid, that Saul has had him slaughtered. Not only him, but his whole family. He is the reason that I and so many others have suffered this great heartache. And these thoughts and the words of his men are no doubt circling in his mind as he approaches Saul and kneels down behind him. And now he is face-to-face with this decision. All right, bro, what are you going to do? And verse 4 tells us, in that moment, he decides he's not going to kill Saul, the man who desires to kill him. But instead, he's going to cut off a piece of his robe. But why would he do that? If it was you, why would you do that? You'd be thinking, maybe thinking, I wouldn't. He would have been dead already. But if it was me, let me tell you why I'd do it. To show my superiority. To show Saul that, dude, your life was in my hands. To show him I have the power over you. I remember hearing this story as a kid and essentially like taking away that that was the idea. That David was kind of having like a power play here. To show him like, if I wanted to kill you, I could have. That it was almost like an arrogant stance. But if we read on... It shows David's reaction is quite different. That there is something more like regret. Verse 5, what does it say? It says his heart struck him. Which is kind of an odd phrase, but other translations put it like this. Said he was conscious stricken, or his conscience bothered him. Or the translation that I found that is most like the phrasing that we would use, it simply says he felt horrible. Why did David feel horrible? Why is there a hitch in David's conscience? In verse 6, he tells us, Saul's the Lord's anointed. Saul's the one that God has set apart, placed as his king over his people. Now, has Saul gone his own way, taken matters into his own hands time and again? Oh, yeah, terribly so. Has Saul blatantly disobeyed God when given direct instructions? Yes, he has. Has he shown regard for his own well-being and reputation and absolutely no regard for that of others? He has. But this is still God's man that God has placed on the throne. And that he has chosen in his sovereignty to leave there. And when David cut off a corner of Saul's robe, he cut away a piece of something symbolic. See, Saul's robe was actually symbolic of his authority. And as David takes out his blade and cuts away a piece of that garment, he's actually showing disrespect to the authority of the king. This is why his heart strikes him. This is why he is bothered in conscience, why he feels terrible. It's not the robe itself. It's what the robe represents. 
Saul's God's anointed. And David has actually, by cutting away his robe, he's actually cut away his authority. And I wonder in what ways you do the same thing. In what ways do you cut away at the corner of others' robes? Here's what I mean. In what ways, maybe even subtly, do you undermine the authority of those in your life? Like, do you make demeaning comments about your boss or other coworkers? Do you talk about your pastors and elders in a way that you think that they've failed you? Kids, do you ever talk about how stupid your teachers or parents are? Adults, you ever look at our politicians and be like, I don't know how that fool is smart enough to feed himself, much less get elected to office. Now look, are there times where we should be critical? Yeah, absolutely. But man, let me encourage you, as you load up to throw those stones, consider this. Would you say that same thing in the same way to someone's face? This is what we tell our kids to do, right? Like, now would you say that like them, like that to them if they were here? We teach this to children, but how often do we fail to take our own advice as adults? If you wouldn't say it that same way to their face, then don't say it at all to anyone. Christian, remember the words that Jesus said in Matthew 7, 12. Whatever you wish others would do to you, do also to them. This is the law and the prophets. It's the golden rule. It seems so simple, right? But how often do we fail to do it? We encourage you, just simply... Whenever you know you're about to make a demeaning comment about someone, whenever you're about to critique them, and again, sometimes there's time for critique, consider, would I say it to them? And when I say it to them, is it in a constructive way or in a way so they, that they know what an idiot they are? So back to David. He cuts off this corner of Saul's robe, and then he goes back with a piece of that robe to show his men. You know what his men would have preferred be in his hands? Saul's blood, so that they could go back home. And it doesn't tell us the exact words they say, but um, it, it shows that they were displeased because it tells us in verse 7 that uh, David persuaded them with his words, but the original language is a little bit harsher. It's more of like uh, he tore them up with his words. And as all this is going on, Saul, still completely oblivious to what's going on, finishes up his business, gets up, and walks out. And as he does, David follows him, calls out after him, bows his face to the ground. And now things are real weird, right? And as we look at this scene, as we consider what it might be like to be there, it, the whole thing may seem really strange to us. But you know what I think helps bring this into perspective? What helped bring it into perspective for me as we start to consider and see, what, what did David value? Man, David valued what God said was important. God said, look, the position of leader over my people is important. God said, human life is important. God said, loving others as we want to be loved is important. God said, honoring one another is important. 
And David placed value on these things, not because he thought it was important, but because God said it was. But is that how we determine where to place value? Do you place value where God does? Do you value other people? Do you value relationships with them? Man, do you value God's church? Do you value the work of the church? Do you value worship with God's people? Do you value the leaders in your work, in your church, and in your government? Do you value God's word? Do you value your relationship with him above anything else? Do you value the cross? Do you value the cross and what it means for you today and what it will mean for you in eternity? You know, if we begin to place value on things without regard for what God says is important, you know, we actually will get it right on certain things. I mean, like non-believers, they value their children, right? Oftentimes, non-believers will even value things like a better society and like care for the poor. Like if, if we don't consider what God considers valuable, if we don't think about what God considers valuable, yes, you will place value on some things that are good. But man, there will also be things that you elevate to a place that they do not belong. And they'll actually begin to really cloud your perspective on what is most important. So here's what I want to encourage you to do. Here's what I want to challenge you to do as this new year begins. I want you to put your phone in the other room and take off your Apple Watch, because that's cheating. And I want you to sit down with a pen and paper. And I want you to honestly take stock of your life and make a list of, this is what I, this is what I value. This is what I think that I value. This is what I think is most important. And then I want you to look at your bank account. And I want you to look at your calendar. And I want you to honestly take stock of your prayer life. And hold these two together. Do the things that I say I hold valuable. And the things reflected in my money and my time and my prayer life. Like, do those two match up? Two most important things to us are money and our time. What do they say you hold valuable? I encourage you to sit down and take stock of these things. And just so you know, I'm going to do the same thing and I'm a little scared. Just be real. Like, because deep down, because look, we all want to think like, of course I value the right things. And then whenever the light is shown on um, what my bank account says I hold valuable, it brings me a little shame. So I'm going to do it too. And I am nervous as well. Let's do it together. So we see, where did David place value? On God's anointed man. And he kept guard as well on how he saw himself. Y'all are well-cultured people. You ever seen the uh, play Fiddler on the Roof or cheated and watched the movie? I've done both way up here in the culture world. So there's a character in there that in some ways I find myself identifying with for different reasons. And it, that's a whole therapy session in and of itself. But the character is Model, the tailor. Model's the guy who has loved the same girl for years, right? He, he's in love with the girl, Seidel. She's the oldest daughter of the main character, Tevye. Model wants to marry Seidel, and Seidel wants to marry him, but his model looks at himself, he's like, 
I don't really know what I can bring. I don't know what I bring to the table. Like, I'm a poor tailor. I, <laughs> I don't have a lot of upward mobility here. Like, I, I'm just a guy. But Seidel, because she loves him, is pushing him. Like, essentially saying, man up. Go ask my dad for my hand. And he says, why? Why would he even consider me? I'm just a poor tailor. But when he finally gets up the courage to go and ask, and the dad says yes, he bursts out into song because that's how real life works. And he starts singing this song where he's actually recounting miracles that God has done throughout the Old Testament because he's Jewish, so he doesn't really care about the New Testament, which is a total other problem, but that's not what this is about either. And he starts singing about all these miracles that God has done, and then he says, of all God's miracles, large and small, blah, blah, blah. And he turns the idea to himself and he refers to himself like this. He says, out of a worthless lump of clay. And in that moment, he's not saying like, I am worthless as a human being. He actually is referring to like his place before God. He is actually viewing himself in relationship, in his standing to God. And if you know about model, you're like, yeah, it's easy for him to see himself that way. Like he is a poor, he is just a poor dude with nothing to offer. But as we think about David, it might be easy for us to see model, maybe even ourselves as lowly and humble, but do you think it would be easy for David to see himself that way? Like David is the guy who has already been anointed by God to be the next king. David is the guy who has killed Goliath. David is the guy who, even in the last chapter, we saw him free a city from the army of the enemy. You know, if I was in David's place, I think it would be really easy for me to think more highly of myself than I should. But here in chapter 24, look at David's posture as he comes out of the cave. How does he address Saul? He says, my Lord. He bows his face to the ground before him. He calls him my father. He ref- and he refers to himself then as what? As a dead dog and a flea. He is elevating Saul to this place of respect. And David is humbling himself before him. He comes to Saul, not with this attitude of, look what I could have done to you, but instead with the posture of a servant, not wanting to harm his master. David doesn't come out as a judge, but as one who has faith in the just judge of the universe. Look at verse 12. What does he say? He says, may the Lord judge between me and you. In verse 15, he says it again. May the Lord, therefore, be judge and give sentence between you and me. David sees himself rightly in this situation. Oh man, wouldn't it have been easy for him not to? Again, place yourself back in this text. Place yourself in David's shoes. How easily might you have started to see yourself as one who had been wronged, as one who should, should go and seek revenge? How quickly might you have killed Saul where he sat to repay him for all the pain he had caused you? How quickly? Might you have stood up as you came out of the cave to name all the great things that you had done and all the ways that Saul had failed? Now think about not not David's life. I want you to think about your own. How often in our own minds or in the way that we speak about others do we put them down and elevate our own positions? How often do we stack up our resumes against others? How often do we look at our accomplishments and think more of ourselves and less of those around us? How often maybe do you look at your children and think, man, I am a superior parent to you. Look at them kids. How could you let them act that way? 
How often do we, on a Sunday morning, look around and mentally, like, absent, absent, absent for the third time in a row, and begin to actually build up our own egos as we put another check in the win column for ourselves? Got up, made it at least on time-ish. The tendency for us as people is to build up ourselves, to bolster our own image, and to boost our egos at the expense of others. This is almost like an impulse reaction most of the time. But man, what if, what if whenever we notice ourselves starting to do that, what if instead we consciously stopped and ask God to bring to our minds not the things that we think bring us value, but the things that God himself says, hey, this is, this is actually what makes you valuable. Because as we focus on the things that he says give us value, we'll begin to see in our, ourselves in a way, not that makes us arrogant, but in a way that humbles us. Because we won't be seeing ourselves in relationship to each other. Instead, we'll begin to see ourselves in relationship to God. And seeing ourselves rightly actually takes pressures off of, off of us. Look at David in this situation. He didn't have the pressure of being the judge between he and Saul. Instead, he could turn it over to God. Like, God, this is your thing to deal with. You deal with the sentence. You deal with the punishment. Man, wouldn't it be a relief for you to not feel like you're always having to defend yourself? You're not having to justify yourself. You're not having to seek justice for yourself every time you feel wronged. Man, starting today, why don't you try? Why don't you try to let go of that felt need that most of us have, or maybe all of us have, to elevate yourself, to justify and defend yourself, to seek justice for yourself why don't you try to let that go, to ask God to change your heart and let you let that go, and to instead turn your focus to rightly seeing yourself before God. Let him be the one to justify and defend you, to seek justice on your behalf. If we're going to compare our accomplishments to anything, and let it be to what we have right now in Jesus, any accomplishment that you hold as valuable then will begin to fade in the light of the reality of, of what we have whenever we are robed in the righteousness of Christ. And man, this is work. It takes conscious effort to stop ourselves, to pray, to ask God, bring these things to my mind. Let me let this go. Yeah, man, it's work. But it is, it's, it's our burdens are relieved. And y'all, these are burdens that you were not created to bear. God can bear them for you. Let him do that. As David that day stood in the darkness of the cave, he had a decision to make. Would he trust in himself? Would he trust in his own wisdom? Would he trust in his own plan? Or would he trust in God and the promise that he had made? David had seen firsthand in the life of Saul that a man following his own wisdom only led to sin and to heartache. Not only for himself, but for those that were around him. But David placed his trust in the promise-keeping God of the universe. And that day, from the mouth of Saul, 
he was reminded of the promise that God had made. What does it say in verse 20? Saul tells David, I know, I know that you will surely be the king. And despite all that he has endured, David could still trust in the promises of God. And that day, David swore to Saul, your family will be safe after you die, and I won't wipe your name from the pages of history. And Saul that day got to go home holding on to a promise of a good man. But David's still a man nonetheless. David, on the other hand, that day, and he didn't go home. Because though Saul had promised peace, David knew that Saul wasn't a man that could be trusted. But luckily for David, he wasn't ultimately holding on to the promise of God's anointed. He wasn't holding on to the promise of Saul. Instead, God, he was holding on to the promise of God himself. And this is the question that we have to answer day after day, multiple times a day. Who are you going to trust? Are you going to trust in yourself and your wisdom and your ability to justify yourself and your ability to enact justice and your ability to make yourself good enough before other people? Are you going to trust in your own ability to make yourself good enough in the eyes of God that he will accept you? Are you going to trust your heart and what it tells you is valuable? Or are you going to look to God and his word to find where value should actually be placed? Who will we trust in? Everywhere we place our trust that isn't God is just as stable as cryptocurrency is. But in him, in him, the everlasting steadfast, unchanging, eternal God. In Him, we can find an anchor for our souls. In Him, we can look to all of history and see every promise you have made, you have fulfilled. Where will you place your trust? Only as we place our trust in Jesus will we find the identity, the rest, and the peace that our souls long for. And only in Him can we find a trust that will never be broken. Let's pray together. God, we love you. We thank you. Uh, man, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this text. Man, we thank you that, and we thank you that you give us the story of the life of David. Man, you call him a man after your own heart. He was a man of your choosing. And yet we see that he was not perfect. Yes, he, on the whole, would value things that you value. He would look for his identity in you. But man, he was a man and he failed. And he would have to turn to you again and again, not only for his safety and his identity, but for his forgiveness. Man, we thank you that you also give us the story of Saul and show us, how destructive our sin can be, how destructive going our own way can be, how destructive it is to follow our own hearts and let them guide us. Then we pray that, not the, God, not the words that I say, we pray that the truths of your word will penetrate deeply into our souls, that they will be at work changing us, sanctifying us, making us more like Jesus. You've promised for every believer 
that you will do this, that you will make us more into the image of your Son, both in this life and for eternity to come. And we hold on to that promise and we ask for faith to believe in it. And we ask now as we come to your table that you would prepare our hearts, that you would remind us that we don't get to come here because of how awesome we are, but instead we get to come because we are robed in the righteousness of Jesus. We thank you that we get to hold on to this reality and that we get to rest in that. We thank you for this time, for your word, for these people, for this sacrament, but most of all for Christ. In his name, pray. Amen. Grandma Kay tells us that in the South, people start New Year's with black eyed peas. Anybody start New Year's Day with black eyed peas? Anybody oh. got that on the uh, schedule? You do. Huh? You do it, don't you? Traditional. We did it last year. We did last year. Cornbread. Cornbread. Black eyed peas. How wonderful that we as God's people get to start uh, with the table.